Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gives you inside access to how retail real estate's most successful leaders went from being an average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CASCM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. You know the old expression about a good person where people will say, I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about that guy or that lady. When I think about all of the people that know Daniel Taub, which is a lot, I mean, this guy knows everybody in our business, it seems like, it goes beyond not being able to find someone who can say something negative about him. As I reflect on all of our mutual friends and relationships in commercial real estate, he has a 100% hit rate of people saying nothing but great things about him. Considering he has some 27 years of experience in the industry that includes C-level positions like his current one as the head of the retail platform for North America at Marcus and Millichap, Daniel's reputation combined with his accomplishments make him an ideal guest to kick off season three for us. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Daniel Taub. Here we are. Could not be any more excited as I have a huge grin on my zooming face with the one and only, if you've ever met him. And if you haven't, then you now have the opportunity to listen to him talk. Daniel Taub with Marcus and Millichap, who humbly runs the retail platform for the organization across North America. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So I uh, needless to say, a pretty big deal, an impressive guy. And Daniel, we could not be any more excited to have you. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great and greatly appreciate the invite and the opportunity to talk with you today. Of course. Happy that you were able to join us. So let's jump right in. Tell us and the listeners, what's your background? Where are you from? What was your family dynamic growing up like? So I grew up actually in San Diego, California, which most people don't know and or are surprised about. I've now lived in New York longer than anywhere else, but I definitely consider myself a Southern California guy at its heart. Nuclear family, if you will, older brother. However, my parents got divorced when I was just on the cusp of becoming a teenager. So that was kind of the beginning of learning how to adjust to what life throws at you. And at the time, couldn't put in perspective, but have definitely had many opportunities in talking about it to kind of recognize that it was the beginning, I think, of something that has done well for me, which is to be able to adjust and make those pivots and those changes. So the California guy, older brother, lives in Chicago, who's in retail, actually works for Costco in their corporate offices, and now live in New York since 1996. How much older is your brother? Two and a half years older. Okay. How would you describe your relationship with him growing up? It was actually great. Well, (laughs) I was the younger brother who was trying to do whatever he did, and that pissed him off. And we would inevitably get into typical fights. I think actually the divorce brought us closer, especially as we both got older and started, we'll call it post-college into our professional careers. And for a short period of time after I graduated college and I moved back to San Diego, we actually lived together for about a nine-month period. So I think it actually is kind of been much better as a result of the divorce. Not that it wouldn't have been as we grew up. And we still talk very regularly and engage with our families because we both have nieces and nephews. Awesome. So you and your brother, barring the typical fighting, that's got to be written out. You didn't fight. I think that would be more of an outlier approach. 
How was the relationship with your parents? Did they stay in the same city? What was that like? The divorce was very akin to, if you've ever seen the movie, The War of the Roses. It wasn't pretty. It was very acrimonious. And we split. My brother lived with my father. I lived with my mother in close proximity, given our age and where we were in school. But for a variety of reasons, it actually was the beginning of the end of my relationship with my father, which became very superficial over the years and ultimately, and unfortunately, destroyed the relationship. Again, it brought my brother and I closer together. We had that in common and we relied upon each other and accessed each other relative to what was going on. Remained very close with my mother, my mother who's a native New Yorker, moved back to New York from California many years ago to be closer with her family. And she lives close by and, you know, have stayed in close contact with her. And especially when we started having kids and bringing the first grandchildren into the family on her side, you know, have maintained a very good relationship. That's great. So you obviously had your fair share of adversity thrown at you. It brought you and your brother closer together, obviously probably cultivated a relationship with your mother that you couldn't imagine replicating. That's a lot for a kid to take on. How did that result and carry over to school? Were you a good student? You know, were you involved in extracurriculars? Talk to us about that. Yeah. Look, education was always something that was impressed upon us when my parents were together and subsequently. So school for me was, was an outlet to perform. And I think I did pretty well. It was important to me. I came from a family that played tennis from a very young age. So I played tennis competitively through my school years, my younger school years, and and into my early college career. So I'd say school was an outlet in that it gave me a place to expend my energy and not focus on some of the negatives and use that as, you know, look, certain things were hard and I pushed myself to excel. And I think that I used that adversity experience to say, look, if I could deal with this, I could excel at that. And I wasn't the valedictorian. I wasn't the number one tennis player on the team. But I think I put in the extra effort to do the best that I could at that given time, whatever it was. And that's a common theme with our guests on this show. You know, it's funny. We've interviewed now 24, 25 people, something like that at the time of this recording. I can't think of anybody who either didn't grow up working a lot, like even in high school, whether it's waiting tables or working in a family's restaurant or whatever it may be, or playing competitive sports. I mean, we've had a lot of Division One and even some professional athletes join us. And it seems to be a common theme. And it sounds like that that probably set you up well for life. You mentioned going to college, playing some tennis there. Where did you go and how did you arrive at that choice? And what was your experience like there? So I did my undergraduate at Boston University which could not have been the furthest location from San Diego, California. Framing it from when I was in high school and thinking about it, the overwhelming majority of my classmates and friends stayed in-state to go to school, and I took the other path. I wasn't good enough to be recruited and or scholarship to play tennis on most of the West Coast teams. That was important to me, at least to have the potential opportunity. So I shifted my focus to the East Coast. I did have extended family and relatives in and around the New York metro area, so it wasn't completely foreign, although very far. And I looked at a variety of schools, all of which, as a part of it was, would I at least have the opportunity to try and play walk-on on on the tennis team? And at the same time, have strong academics and know that 
tennis was not going to be the holy grail savior, if you will. I, I wasn't going wasn't to become the career, but it was important and it was a passion of mine. So I applied to a variety of schools on the East Coast, a couple of the UC schools in California as backup schools, because back then it was easier than it was today to get in. And ultimately, I was fortunate enough to get into Boston University and some others, and I had met the coach, enjoyed him. I really liked the urban, suburban campus environment, which was nice contrast to obviously sunny beach, California. And there you go. The rest was history, as they say. There you go. The words real estate have not been thrown out yet in our discussion. Something happens at some point. What did you think that you wanted to study in college or kind of walk us through that story of where you started and how you ended up where we are? Well, maybe not where we are today per se, but at least how you ended up in the industry that you're in. Yeah. So I was definitely one of those who really wasn't sure what I wanted to do specifically going into college and actually leaving college. I was an economics major as a way to get a basis of kind of understanding a lot of things that get impacted by economics. And I actually left college really still uncertain exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to work for a great company. I thought the ability and the experiences that I would get exposed by working for a great company would help identify for me what my passion was and what it was like to be part of a very strong, high quality caliber organization. And so at the time I graduated, the gap back then, and this is going back many, many years, was truly the A-class retailer at the time. Mickey Drexler, the very well-known CEO, was CEO of Gap at the time. And the Gap had a corporate management training program and they had a Southwest office actually in San Diego. So I applied and I got accepted, and it was a multidisciplinary program, which gave you exposure to a variety of corporate functions, including real estate, as well as having some in-store retail experience. I quickly came to the realization that in-store retail was definitely not what I wanted to do. However, with the corporate offices above the location that I would sometimes go in, and then traveling to and from San Francisco where their corporate offices were, it really was intriguing to understand the real estate side of it, as much as the operational side, merchandising, inventory, store operations, marketing. So that was the, really the first taste. But it really wasn't because I went there from a real estate. It was went there because they were, again, the creme de la creme, the A retail at the time. And I thought it would be a really good opportunity. So that was the first touches of getting into the industry from a very roundabout, not indirect way. So let me get this straight. You applied to the gap in a management training position that was sort of an opportunity to get exposure to different components of their business. And one of those rounds or rotations involved real estate. And that's what kind of made you want to gravitate toward our industry? No. Okay. You could tell how good of a student I was in school. No, no. So the answer is, that was correct about what the program was. It was my first exposure. I can't say that it led me to getting more involved in the industry because from there, unfortunately, the program got terminated before my year rotation was completed. And so the options were to move into an in-store assistant manager role, 
working retail or to leave the program. And I knew that I was not built for, I wasn't interested in, I didn't have a passion to be an in-store, to be a store manager, if you will. Very important, just wasn't what I wanted to do. And it seemed limiting for me. And it wasn't the direction I wanted to go. So I actually transitioned completely away from retail and real estate and moved up to LA where my girlfriend then, wife now, was working in the movie industry. And ultimately, I got connected with a small movie studio and joined them in their marketing and business affairs side of the business. So I left, you know, in essence, retail and real estate for a short period of time. Okay. So you moved to LA. And this is just pure curiosity coming out at this point. Tell me about your role there. Like, What exactly were you doing on a day-to-day basis? So this was a small movie studio that was called Sufoy Pictures. And I worked with the legal and business affairs team. So that had to do with, in essence, all the behind-the-scenes things that happened that you don't realize. Like getting clearance and approval to use certain songs in movies, music clearance, title insurance to ensure the production of the movie itself. Working with our legal team, both internally and externally, on producer and actor agreements and their writers and requirements. So it was all the things behind the scene that a lot of people don't see because it's not the publicity, it's not the marketing, and it's not really the movie itself. Okay, this is where the story keeps going and you tell me how you somehow get into retail commercial real estate or something. So the company is notified that Barry Diller is going to acquire the company. And Barry has been in the movie and entertainment industry for many, many years. Before that, he was, at the time, running Home Shopping Network. And our movie studio actually owned about 13 or 14 UHF TV stations, which was critical to his early days of building out that platform. So he actually didn't buy the movie studio for the movie business which ultimately led to the dissolution of the movie. So on a dubious Black Friday, if you will, mass firings are going on. I'm sitting in my cubicle as one and another and another and another people go into me with the CFO to hear their story of what's going on and here's their notice, et cetera. So lunch comes and I'm still like there. And I'm like, I'm going to go to lunch. I go to lunch. I come back. It's now like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I finally get called to the CFO's office. I'm like, I literally had a box packed up. I was just sitting at my desk in my cube, just waiting for the call. I'm like, oh, maybe alphabetical, tab, whatever. Hey, Daniel, blah, blah, blah. As you know, Barry Diller's buying the firm. We're going to dissolve the the movie business. We want to promote you. Great. They basically promoted me because I was less expensive and I helped with our chief legal officer and our outside law firm to help wind down the business, sell off rights, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I was invited to my uncle's surprise 50th birthday party back east in New York. And my uncle and my first cousin had formed and created a real estate platform called DLC Management. And this was in the summer of 96. And at the time, after the party, the three of us had a conversation. They outlined what their business was about, 
where they were, what their vision was, what they saw happening in the industry. And we're looking to say, you know, we'd like to see if you wanted to join us and learn the business and become part of the family business, et cetera. That was in July of 96. And on November 9th, 1996, I was on a one-way ticket on Tower Air, does not exist anymore, from LAX to JFK. I shipped my car out on a flatbed and I got into the retail real estate business. There you go. So obviously, DLC is a well-known brand in the industry now. They've obviously built up a hell of a platform. What was the infrastructure like at DLC when you started there in 1996? Like, What was your role and about what way, shape, or form did the company even look like at that time? So the company had been formed in 91, which was coming out of the SNL crisis, doing third-party advisory work for a lot of the larger firms who had bought these massive pools of loans, but they didn't know anything about the real estate. So the firm started about five years prior. When I joined, just to put it in perspective, there were no computers at the office. There was just the fax machines that had the nice, slippery, rolly paper. And there was just a handful, not even a handful of people. It was my uncle, my first cousin, a CFO, and a head of leasing and property manager, and an administrative assistant. So... Outside of my uncle and my cousin, I was, in essence, like employee number three. And the company was growing, although slowly and had started acquiring its first asset on the ownership side in 93, again, coming out of the SNL crisis. And so my job was to be a spy. My job was to learn anything and everything, live, sleep, eat, breathe, retail real estate. And for the first six months, I lived with my first cousin. And we commuted to work together, spent the day at the office together, and then would go home and at the end of the evening, after dinner, go over leases, go over loan documents, you name it. And it was a full immersion into everything related to retail real estate. So in the classic situation of a small, at the time, small family business, where there's no titles really, or or a lot of like, direct structure. It's just especially the family members just do anything and everything and work on everything all the time. Absolutely. Which probably made you crazy in the moment, but what had to have been an unbelievable education. Yeah. I think like most entrepreneurs, and you probably can speak to this as well, is you wear the hat or hats you have to wear in any given situation at any time of the day. It's just what you do, especially in an entrepreneurial platform. And especially in a platform where there's growth. And you don't have enough time to go out and hire X, Y, and Z expert. You figure it out. So it was a great education. I was fortunate because of when I joined the firm and where we were in the cycle and the growth spurts that the company had, that environment definitely gave that hands-on experience and learned a lot of lessons because you failed a lot. Not in a negative way, it was just part of the learning process of what does work and what doesn't work. And sometimes you had to figure things out on your own and learn from people externally who were experts in their field, but you didn't know what you were doing, but you had to go ahead. So it was a, for me, one of the great ways to really learn the business from a 360 perspective, operationally, financially, construction, leasing, property management, you name it, because you did what you had to do. 
This seems like a really good opportunity for me to ask you about your most embarrassing story, which we ask every guest about. Because you know, most people, when they first get into the business, they're like, I was a property manager and I worked on property management. Or I was a leasing agent or an investment sales broker, whatever I did. And the role is typically pretty specified and defined. You didn't have that. So you really had a lot more opportunity to embarrass yourself than most of our other guests. So I'm curious to hear if you have an embarrassing story for us. Jeez, an embarrassing story. I got to tell you, trust me, I've embarrassed myself plenty over my 20 plus years. There wasn't necessarily anyone where I'm like, it was just this wildly, unfortunately, wildly, shockingly embarrassing story. I mean, I had some interesting experiences, but they weren't necessarily embarrassing. Those are accepted on the Limitless podcast. I just talked to management about it. So interesting (laughs) is always good. We're just trying to sell ratings here, Daniel. (laughs) You know, look, you don't know what you don't know. And we owned an asset where we had a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, go dark in the middle of the night and vacate, which it happens. And of all different types of retailers, and unfortunately, sometimes, you know, more so with local mom and pops. And so at that time, I was doing leasing and property management, a little bit of construction here and there. So I was wearing and doing whatever needed to be done at these, at these various properties. So I go out to the property to see what's going on, right? To just see what exists, what happened, to try to figure it out. Spoke to some of the adjacent tenants. Did they see or hear anything? So the incident was I went in to the space, got access to the space. The power was off. I think they had been off for you know a few days, three or four days. Go in in the era of flashlights. You didn't have a cell phone light at the time. This is the great age of Blackberries, just to date it. And I'm looking around a vacant former Chinese restaurant that had kind of left in the middle of the night. So you can only imagine the things that you find in a vacant former restaurant. I think I was probably, well, first of all, I got rid of my shoes because I think I had more grease on my shoes than you can even imagine. You didn't get rid of your shoes while you were in the space though? Definitely not. But it was very quickly (laughs) thereafter. I think I probably have threw them in the dumpster outside the back of the shopping center. I was not prepared to go in my car with them. But that's after I almost soiled myself when in the dark, I'm trying to get an inventory. What's there? Is the Ansel system there? Did they take anything? What's left? How bad is the damage? What are we going to do? Because again, we hadn't yet transferred and turned power back on. Well, let's just say that the walk-in cooler had a few guests inside. And don't ask me how. Ultimately, we found out that they came in through the roof. Different issue because of the roof issues. But there seemed to be a large family of animals devouring what they had left. And they had left a tremendous amount of food in the walk-in cooler. To which, when you open the door, the smell, the surprise, completely like it was an oh shit moment, if I can say that, because I just did. And yes, that was the end of my inspection. You do what you have to do. You inspect a vacant Chinese restaurant and you move on. Now I learned the lesson. Don't do that. It's very (laughs) rare that I don't have a lot to say on this podcast (laughs) or in general for those who know me, but that like I cannot get the thought of it. And I've experienced some nasty vacancies. As you well know, my background is leasing 
value add, as we like to say, shopping centers. <laughs> and sometimes that comes with some spaces where there would be a lot of value to clean them out. That's right. And that is beyond putrid. That is beyond any of my poorest experiences. Usually the guests that I was dealing with were homeless people. Yep. This sounds worse. And I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. And I hope our listeners, as they are uh, enjoying this on a plane or or out on a walk or whatever, or even doing it at their desk over lunch, are not inspired <laughs> to have their own oh shit moment. <laughs> so hopefully me saying oh shit validates that oh shit's okay on this thing, by the way. So that is uh, an interesting story, I would say. So that said, you also made another comment earlier, as I rapidly look to switch gears, that you had the opportunity to interact with external people that were experts in what they did between those people and your cousin and your uncle and whomever else as you were getting going. Because I know you well enough to know that you asked great questions, which probably led you to some opportunity of mentors. Talk to me about that dynamic. Who are your mentors? Who are your mentors currently? And what general feedback do you have? Because I know a lot of our listener base would love to hear from somebody so successful like you. For me, mentors come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. You're a mentor to a degree. I mean, for me, what I learned was is that whether someone has 20 plus years of experience or 20 minutes, there's always something to learn in a conversation. And yes, some other people can impart different forms of experiences and information and wisdom, if you will. But it comes in all different shapes and sizes. And some of it is ongoing. Some of it is very technical related to the retail real estate industry. And some of it's just more dealing with a variety of situations that aren't really real estate related, but ultimately will lead back to the real estate element. So it's come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Internally, from when I was at DLC, teammates, colleagues, not only the people that are quote-unquote title-wise above you, because People in general have a lot to give. It's those people who want to give that I connect with because I appreciate them sharing those things that they've experienced, some of which may be just interesting and not germane, some of which will very much help continue my evolution in terms of what I then absorb and how do I do it and make it my own. So I would say the list is actually quite long and ranges from some of the great vendors that I've had an opportunity to work with, whether it's been on the technology field, the environmental field, the legal field, the capital markets, it's just been kind of an ongoing evolution and dynamic of just engaging. Because to me, the people part of this business is one of the factors that separates those that are successful versus those that are not as successful. And to me, the people part is the most important, inspiring, interesting, challenging element, but can be the most rewarding. And to this day, for me, that continues to hold true. So I don't want to necessarily give one person or name one person, but I say a lot of people over time and today remain very much mentors in a lot of different ways. I thought what was most interesting about what you said is the fact that you have been at this for a while now and your reputation is outstanding throughout the industry. Everybody knows you. And you have this platform to come on and you are probably, as people like us 
the older ones would say verklempt, which means overcome with emotion in Yiddish, about the mentorship that you've had to a point to where you want to just include everybody, including the people that are just getting started that you feel like you can learn something from. And I think that's a valuable lesson because the one thing that everybody that listens to this show has in common is that they are trying to get better, whether they've been doing it, to use your words, 20 minutes or 20 years. And I think it's a good reminder of a valuable lesson that like, you really can learn from anyone or anything at any time. And in order to have that opportunity, you have to be receptive to it. And so here's somebody who's been in the C-level, is now currently sitting at a very high seat, which more to come on that shortly, at a publicly traded you know, multinational company and saying, I can learn from anybody. And I think that's ultimately what helps you get to where you are. So I appreciate your wisdom and perspective as I would expect nothing less, which is why we were so adamant about having you on. And I appreciate the color there. So let's get back into your story. So you're at DLC and you're doing anything and everything, including visitations with live rodents and walking coolers of vacant Chinese restaurants. Continue with your story. Where do things go after the first couple of years, let's say, with your tenure at DLC? Yeah, look, the company experienced tremendous growth along the way, navigating a variety of different real estate and economic cycles, but ultimately was able to continue that growth. And that growth created growing pains, as it does in any company that's growing fast, but it also creates opportunity. And I was fortunate to be in a position to take advantage and be given those opportunities. And ultimately, as the company grew and as the needs of the company grew and as the investment thesis continued to evolve, and as we just became a bigger organization, how do you keep that core spirit of what made the company what it was, but at the same time, influence and impart certain guardrails and institutionalism that helps elevate the brand? So people process procedures, really, with people being first. The real estate was and always is hugely important. But if you don't have the right people in the right place and have those policies and procedures, you won't maximize the investment opportunity or return. So in 2008, I got introduced to a good friend of ours, Beth Azor, at an ICSC conference. And Beth introduced me to a product that was designed to help understand people's innate behaviors and motivations and challenges. And that for me was a turning point. That completely influenced how to go about conducting myself, but engaging with the totality of teammates who were all on the same team looking at it the same way, which is whether you're in property management or accounting, leasing, legal, you're all on the same team trying to effectuate the same outcome for the investment opportunity. But everybody operates a little bit differently. So how do you get everybody more functioning efficiently, knowing that they operate differently, but the goal is still the same? And that totally influenced, for me, how to go about helping to work with the rest of the team and continue to evolve and grow. And ultimately, that led to many, many more years of success and learning because some of the roles and opportunities that I had were new. I had not been in them before. And so as going back to day one, you kind of learn by doing and being thrown into the fire and you know, having resources there 
my uncle and my cousin definitely helped as I matured along the way and as the company grew. And so it just evolved to the point where we grew and grew and grew. And as a result, going back to the earlier point, you wear whatever hats you have to wear in order to keep the machine going. But as you grow and as you get bigger, you really need to really have that team that's in place to execute day in and day out because you just can't do it all on your own. It's just at some point, you can't make all the decisions. You can't just do everything. It's not the best thing for the assets. It's not the best thing for your investor. You know I love you. (laughs) And you're a double-edged sword to have on the show because you've made it to where you have and you're a big name in the industry. But you're also really frustrating to interview because the show's about you and your career. And I asked you what your roles were. And you go on a and classic, I shouldn't have expected anything different. Talking about the people, the process and the procedures and how people were first and how you, what you guys did together as a team was special and how you navigated those growing pains together, together and as a team and we and group and team. And it's like, that's wonderful. And it's 100% true. And it speaks volumes about what you guys were able to accomplish at DLC and particularly your involvement in that. That said, everybody wants to know what you did. So, so what did I do? The company was an acquisitions growth company. We didn't go out and build stuff. We didn't go look for undeveloped land. We grew by acquisition. Sure. Can relate to that, by the way. Right. So that became a hugely important part of how the business was going to grow. So I, again, had the opportunity to work, to learn, and then start to work on the acquisition part of the business because it was one of the first parts of how do we grow the company? Well, we got to grow by acquisitions. The second part was, we had to execute. And the overwhelming majority of that was on a variety of operational challenges, but really leasing driven. So for a good amount of my career, as the company grew, I spent more and more time on the acquisitions, transactional due diligence, financing side of the business. As we grew and as the company needed more people to step up in a variety of capacities, I worked with my uncle to learn more about the operational side of the business, the leasing, the property management, the construction side of the business. And so I started to take on a role, what was then called chief operating officer, and that expanded staying involved on the acquisitions platform and the investment committee, but really trying to help the rest of the operational part of the team. And then that grew and expanded to not only property management, leasing, and construction, but it was HR, marketing, legal, accounting, asset management, which became a new department. So my role and what I did evolved as the company grew and there were needs and voids to be filled as we also brought in outside experts and talent in whether it was construction or, or asset management, et cetera. Awesome. Appreciate that, Keller, because I knew what I was going to have to pry uh, as soon as you started talking on the, the first round. So this is great. Thank you. So. Let's get some perspective here. You started DLC in 1996 as the guy, or a guy, I should say. There was certainly no title or set position, if you will. And how many properties... I know there was five people there. About how many properties did DLC own at that time? I want to say that we owned maybe a handful, five, six, plus or minus. We were also at the same time 
doing third-party management leasing for probably another 10 to 12 assets at the time. So the ownership side had only started in 93, so a few years before I joined, and that was still at the tail end of the SNL crisis. And the company was still morphing because, again, it still was doing third-party management leasing, which there were more assets in that bucket than there were in the ownership bucket at the time that I joined the firm. Got it. And about, what, 10 years in or so, you become chief operating officer? Yeah, about 10 years, plus or minus. Yeah. What did the company look like at that time, roughly? We probably had 45 to 50 assets. We were now outside of the metro New York tri-state area. We had expanded into the Midwest and to the Mid-Atlantic. And we were on the precipice of expanding rapidly and significantly in the Southeast. Mm-hmm. So 10 years in, you're chief operating officer of this growing company. I think I'm going to ask this question now. I am going to ask this question now after thinking about it for a split second. Is that the role you wanted? Like When you joined your cousin and uncle in 1996, and there's, obviously they had a vision, right? Like I assume that they wanted to grow the platform. And they were probably pitching you on that idea. I'm certain that you didn't go into it thinking you were going to like trump them in any way, shape, or form. So was this what you wanted? I mean, did you execute on your plan, basically? It wasn't a plan. I came into it not knowing anything about the business, even from my limited experience at The Gap. So it was really about... I wanted to learn as much as I can about everything that there was to own, operate, retail assets. And at the time, very much value-add retail assets. I became interested in what I knew about myself was as I had the opportunity to learn a variety of different aspects of the business, one of the things I knew about myself or I learned about myself was I didn't want to be doing the same job over and over. I wanted a role that gave me an opportunity to be involved with a lot of different things over the course of any day and every period of time? And then how do you make them work together? Because when you're going out to acquire value-add, right? there are a lot of things that go into it. And so how do you get all of those different pieces working together to create the value and execute on that? And to me, Figuring out that puzzle and not every property had the same equation or elements was, I liked the challenge of that, but I also liked the diversity of having to understand enough about different parts that went into the asset as well as running the platform to execute on it. That became very clear to me in terms of it was something that I had a passion for and I thought I was pretty good. So it wasn't really by design because when I joined, it was, I didn't know what was out there. I didn't know what opportunities inside the platform. The company was also very small and looked very different in 96 than it did in 2006, let alone 10 years later in 2016 over that course of period of time. So it wasn't by design. Again, it was also you kind of filled the need and the void as the company's growing to stem some of those growing pains. And it worked really well because my cousin had his areas of expertise and what he was really good at. 
my uncle had areas of expertise and experience of what he was really good at. We had different people, but we didn't have anybody in this role. And, the, and it really never existed in a formal sense. And we needed to create a little bit more formality or institutionalization. Sure. So just to hit the reset button here for a second, just so people know where we are in the chronological order of your career. 10 years in, 2006, 45-ish properties, a real team. You're the chief operating officer. And what's crazy is we're only halfway through your tenure at DLC. So take us through the second half. Well, 06 is not that far from 08, which led to the great financial crisis. So like everybody else, not knowing what was going to happen over the ensuing years, other than it felt like the sky was falling and the world was coming to an end. Look, we pivoted, as I think most firms did, and had to adjust and address the challenges. Between 06 and 08, we actually had bought a few portfolios. So we had expanded and grew the platform in addition to additional one-offs. So the portfolio had grown to over 80 assets as we were going through the great financial crisis. We took a lot of the initiatives and put implemented a lot of the variety of policies that needed to be in order to secure and be a fiduciary to our investors and to do what was best for the asset. We worked our way through that. It forced us to look in the mirror and understand what we did well, what we didn't do well. There were some areas that we needed to change internally that existed. And we also had to modify our business model in terms of what kind of equity and what kind of debt we used. We needed a different type of reporting requirement because we went from private syndicated high net worthy individual investors, and we'll call it phase one, to institutional partners coming out of the great financial crisis. And they're just two different types of investors and they have different needs and requirements. So I went about with others on the management team and we decided we needed to create an asset management department division, which we never had had because we needed to make sure that we could provide high quality customer service to our new institutional equity partners. We came out of it with new equity, new debt, and started being a buyer again. We went back to our roots, which was we were hands-on operating. We prided ourselves on our operational expertise and in creating value and solving problems. And so we went back to our roots and we started buying those types of properties which were available coming out of the great financial crisis. And then we continued a whole slew of, of new acquisitions, in essence, under you know, DLC 2.0, with new types of equity, new debt terms, and trying to go through, in essence, a second growth phase, which is what we did. Love that. So it happens. It's The company then evolves to what over the second 10 years of your time here? Let's fast forward to the... 2000, I don't know, 15, 16 range, as you've alluded to before, with your tenureship there. And what does the portfolio look like? What does the team look like at that time? Doing part largely to your contributions along with your teammates there. Yeah. So we continue to grow. We were strategic in some of our legacy assets in terms of recapitalizations. We did some pruning, like everybody did, of their portfolios, but we were fundamentally a growth company vis a vis acquisitions. And we did that. We expanded the portfolio into new markets. We opened up a new office in Western New York and Buffalo because we acquired multiple portfolios in that part of the world. 
in addition to multiple one-off opportunities in existing markets. So by the time I left DLC, where we were just about 112, 111, 112 properties in 26 states with just over, just about with five regional offices and just shy of 22 million square feet of owned retail property. The hell of a ride from a handful of people and a handful of properties to 26 states, 111 properties, 22 million square feet of real estate. That is a boatload. And nobody, I don't think, could look at anybody with a straight face and not say that you were an instrumental part in that. That's got to be pretty incredible to reflect back on and know that you played a, a huge role in that. It was a phenomenal 22 years. I mean, I got a, an undergraduate, a graduate, and a PhD in retail real estate in that period of time. And having been exposed to a variety of different cycles that we had to navigate and ride the roller coaster up. So, you know, look, as I go back to it, right, I was blessed to be there, right time, right place, right opportunities. I think that I hopefully contributed enough to help the team get there. And again, I couldn't have asked for a better education. And for me, it was the type of education that worked. I responded very well to just learning and doing and being exposed to things along the way and yet having guidance and oversight and influence internally and externally. So what happens next? You know, 2019 was a year to kind of like take a deep breath and was going to be a year of kind of me time, family time. And before January of 2019 hits, a few people had reached out and asked if I would consult for them in a variety of capacities, mostly in retail real estate, not exclusively. So I did that with a variety of groups, including a national retailer for 2019. And towards the end of 2019, I just like, I realized that, look, I love retail real estate. I love the industry. I love the people. I love the challenges, the headaches, the rewards, the frustrations, you name it. And I really wanted to get back in the game, if you will, full-time. I had a handshake deal to join a private REIT as their chief investment officer and chief operating officer at the end of February of 2020. And we all know what happened a couple of weeks later with the COVID and the pandemic. They obviously changed course, rightfully so, to you know go into triage, like most firms did. I wound up going back to a few of the groups I was consulting for. They asked me to re-engage given what they were dealing with. I did that. And then I got introduced to one of the COOs of Marcus Milichap through a mutual friend. And that really kind of was a month-long journey of discussions and conversations, both intimately about their business as well as what was going on vis-a-vis as a result of COVID and what were they thinking and what was I thinking? And as they say, the rest is history. I joined Marcus in October of 2020. Just so we're crystal clear, you joined Marcus and Molochap in October of 2020. You're an SVP running an entire asset type for them. How many deals have you done in brokerage in your career? <laughs> well, if you include the off-market transactions, not that many. <laughs> And I asked that question just to add, add a little humor and keep it lighthearted, but B, to kind of set the tone on 
what you're really there to do, right? Like just so we're all on the same page for our listeners, because you hear somebody works at Marcus and Milichak, unless they're a transaction coordinator, it's, oh, this person makes outbound cold calls to sellers and or is a heavy hitting broker that has a big list of books and they broker a lot of deals. That is totally not what you do. So what is it that you do? <laughs> Good question. So I work with the army, if you will, the team of retail agents for Marcus and Millichap and our institutional arm, IPA, both here and in Canada. Look, my goal is to figure out how do we improve what we're already really good at. Marcus and Millichap executes more retail transactions, let alone real estate transactions, than any other firm by a huge magnitude. And how do I enhance what's already working well externally and internally? And where are there new opportunities to expand the platform? What areas, while we dominate in so many, where can we expand into? How do we grow market share? Especially on the Marcus and Milichap side, if you think about it, one of the brilliance of, of what Marcus and Milichap did when it was created in 1971 was it started to focus on an institutionalized, a highly fragmented, ignored marketplace, which was the private client. And there are so much of retail real estate is not owned by institutions for a variety of reasons. It's not a negative. But the overwhelming majority of retail real estate, whether it's single tenant at least or multi-tenant, is not owned by institutions or quasi-institutions. They're owned by Zig. They're owned by the doctor next door. They're owned by a variety of people for a variety of reasons. So the interesting thing for me is how do I take my 20 plus years of experience on the principal side and what I know and the people I know and how do I bring that and leverage that and help the team? How do I help not only those that are top producers, those that are emerging producers, but those that are new to the business? What can I impart to them? How can I help them grow their businesses? And how do I help them expand their thoughts so that they're that much more a student of the game and can be that much more of value to their clients? than they already are because the platform provides a tremendous amount of collateral support research that our agents in turn share and use with their clients to make sure that the clients are as informed and are maximizing their investments, whether they're on the buy side or the sell side. It's funny when you break it down like that and you go through the different things that make your job tick or that you need to have a certain skill set for. I'm thinking to myself as you're going through them, check. Yeah, he nails that. He nails that. And for those who don't know, I actually started my career in the business at DLC management of all places. And I couldn't have been more new. I literally knew nothing. It was day one of the business. I started there. And shortly after I started, I had the opportunity of meeting you. And you couldn't have been any more humble and more giving of your time and engaged in the process and had a genuine interest in trying to facilitate not only helping me, but helping all the peers of mine that were just getting started, that had been in the business for a medium amount of term, as you say, an emerging producer and all the heavy hitters. So when you put it that way, you're just doing what you were doing, at least a component of what you were doing at DLC with Marcus now, except at massive scale. And I see you out and about all the time. And it's been really fun to watch you execute on that and see you put sort of your magic fairy dust or whatever it is that you do to people 
and to get them to be committed and bought in and doing things the right way. And uh, I couldn't be more committed to my testimonial of you as, as a real life experiential experiencing in real life, if you will, as well as being able to see it peripherally now that you're with Marcus. And it's been fun to watch. So kudos to you on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that said, I just went on a rant about how wonderful you are. What are your biggest weaknesses and how do you navigate them? What I learned about myself was I am inherently impatient. I am semi-good with details. And so what I've learned is how do I compensate for those two things in particular? And it's a constant battle and effort to be conscious of those two particular factors. And as a result, whether it was at DLC or anywhere else, is how do I surround myself with people who are better and or more strategic in those areas and can help me so that I can balance where my weaknesses are and continue to work on them, but also use my time efficiently on those areas where I think I am pretty good at. And as you know, because you've been doing this, you're never at a point of where you should stop learning about yourself, about your business, about what's going on. And so for me, it's been that constant both struggle to get better and learn and learn from others. And at the same time, accelerate what comes naturally so that I can continue to be value-add to those I work with, but also work on those things that I know are my shortcomings. And I think time helps if you're dedicated to it. Will I ever be the most detail-oriented person? No. Have I gotten better? Yeah, for sure. And some of it comes from lessons I've learned on things that, quite frankly, I've messed up or I have failed at. But I ultimately knew why, and I've done it. Those two things are the areas where I still have the most amount of work that needs to be done. It's a work in progress. There you go. But anybody who's focused on growing and learning the way you are will inevitably become better. As my high school coach would say to me, well, you're never going to be fast, but we can make you less slow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to keep it going with the rapid fire questions as we do with all of our guests. Craziest deal you've ever worked on? Probably the first deal. Oh, okay then. First acquisition deal I was involved with. This was actually when you did closings in person. And it was, that was the norm. Everything about it. It went into the late to the middle of the night. And it was just a very surreal experience. Never having done a real estate transaction before. So having been involved with learning about the acquisitions and going through due diligence when never having done due diligence before, what does that even mean? What do you do? To then going through and seeing the whole closing live and in person, it was probably one of the best learning experiences, but definitely one of the, the most interesting. Nice. Biggest curveball you've ever been thrown in your career? I would tell you that the biggest curveball was actually not at DLC or my real estate career. I think that it was probably early having to make the decision at the gap as to whether or not to go in store or to quit. That was probably the hardest one. Because I think it was because I was young, inexperienced, and unsure of what I was going to do and what could I bring to the table to someone. And at that time, I didn't really have that much. And I wasn't so sure that it, what exactly I was going to do. Fair enough. I can understand contemplating life as being a pretty difficult 
deal decision or curveball to, to be had. So I, I totally understand that. What advice do you have for someone who's either looking to break into the business or has been doing it for, let's say, less than five years? I'll tell you that I think, and I learned this. So for me, I learned it later, but still early in my career. But I wish I had learned it where I had been given words about it earlier, which is, and you and I are an example of this. And what I mean by that is who you meet in this business can completely and utterly, in both good and bad ways, change the trajectory of what you do in this sector. And the more you elevate, prioritize, invest in your personal connections in your network, the more return you will get over the long run of a career than you could ever imagine. And you just don't know where someone you meet today is going to be in five years and 10 years from now. And you may never transact with them. You may never do a deal with them. You may never do business with them. But at the same time, it's those people that you invest to, that you give to, not just take. That network is probably the most valuable tool. The real estate can be complex and complicated, but it's the easiest of the people or the real estate, in my experience. Because you can have great real estate, and some of it's obvious, right? Choose your major city, right? And there's Maine and Maine. Without the right people that are with you or next to you or part of your team, you're never going to really maximize the value in that. And the next opportunity isn't going to come from the real estate per se. It's going to come from the people that you know and that you work with or that you've met along the years. And so to your point of your first job being with PLC and to where you are today, look, who knows? We've tried and we will continue to try to work together in, in a variety of capacities. It will happen more than once. But to me, that's the thing is that be a student of the game, know everything you can about what you do, but don't underestimate the power of people. This is a people industry. It truly is extremely powerful as your career progresses and be a student of the game. Love that. It's important that people hear this message and that you have been all about we and personal development and retaining a commitment to being, as you say, a student of the game. So I know you're a reader. It's one book that changed your life. I would say the best book that I read that had the most impact was a book called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace by Ron Friedman. And while the title is the best place to work, it doesn't make a difference whether you're today's day one of your career or you've been in the business 20 years or more. There's so much takeaway about what it means to be part of, to lead, whether your title says you're a leader or not. The book to me is truly revolutionary and probably have the most impact in terms of what changes I made to the things that I thought I was doing well and learned from the book that I had opportunity to change and to improve upon that. Noted. And I would be doing our listeners a disservice if I didn't tell them that this book, along with the other books that get recommended by our guests are on the Zig website. And you can grab them there. 
And I will definitely be doing that one myself. I'm looking forward to reading that. Thank you for sharing that. All right, last question. If you've heard the show before, you've heard it. And no matter how many people think they're prepared for it, they still get a little spooked when I ask it. But a long, long time from now, when you finally decide to hang it up and go to a beach or do whatever you want to do, go drink wine in Napa, whatever it may be, ICSC is certainly going to write, and the other trade publications are certainly going to write a little article about you and Daniel Taub finally decides to hang it up. What do you want that article to say about you and your legacy to be like in the industry? Well, humbly speaking, I don't, I don't know that I have a legacy, if you will, in the industry. What I would say is ICSC has been very important for me. I have learned a tremendous amount and the relationships that I have garnered and have invested in, gracious to have as a result of it, has probably been some of the most rewarding time I've used in the industry. So I think what I would say is he cared, he was committed, and he tried to do right. So far, you're doing a hell of a job. (laughs) Every day, you got to keep on trying. There you go. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for your time. Enjoyed the conversation. I had high expectations and you exceeded those. So thank you on behalf of all of our listeners. And we certainly look forward to watching the next bit of your time at Marcus Unfold and seeing what you're able to accomplish and contribute to the team there. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And likewise, I know Zig is on the terror, continuing to gobble up, execute, and turn profits on deals. So I can't wait to see what 2023 brings for Zig. Thank you for the plug. I'll send your check in the mail. All right. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Take care. and Thank you. Thanks for listening to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did in fact get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.